gather together uh, freely and, and to discuss your word. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fill this place, Lord, that you would teach us from your word, Lord, that you would guide our thoughts and our actions, uh, that you would mold us into the image of Christ, God, and prune out the things uh, that are not of you, Lord. Amen. So for those of you that are new, um, I am not the pastor. I'll be very clear on that. Um, we have a teaching team that gathers every week. We discuss the scripture that's coming up. Uh, everyone contributes different ideas, and we, we uh, look at the scripture very closely, and uh, we take sort of turns in, in teaching. So uh, full disclosure, I haven't done this in about three years. Um, I had a critical period uh, when my children were, were little and wasn't able to do that. So this is kind of the first time back in some time. Um, so we've got a lot of stuff to cover today. Um, I am not perfect. Um, we're going to talk about some difficult topics and uh, actually we'll give, uh, my hope is to give an overview sort of of this Old Testament passage that we're talking about in light of Christ in the New Testament, but then also in light of uh, life, right? Real life examples and what does that kind of look like here? And so. Uh, if you don't believe that I'm not perfect, I have a couple of examples to show that. So we'll get to that later. Okay, so uh, if you've been here for a while as a church, uh, you know that we've been going through the narrative lectionary. Uh, it's been sort of a hopscotch through the Old Testament uh, starting last summer, uh, beginning in Genesis 2. We've got a slide that kind of overviews the things that we've covered. Um, so for those of us that are accustomed to sort of walking through a particular book of the Bible, uh, this can be a little bit disconcerting. It can be a little bit difficult to see the different threads and things that we're talking about, but the people that set this up uh, really did have specific passages in mind to tie together different threads. So we have talked about, over the past few weeks, um, we've talked about uh, grace, the thread of grace going through here. We've talked about the, the thread of uh, the freedom to choose, that God gives us the ability to make decisions and choices. Um, and today I'm going to add a third one, allegiance. And so just kind of very briefly, I'm gonna hit a couple of these points, um, but I really want you to think about this at home, think about this in your small group and really probe this. We don't have time to go through all of this today. Um, but by way of a very, very quick summary overview, uh, starting with the beginning in Genesis 2, that, that story is set up clearly as an idyllic setting where man and woman have a perfect relationship with each other, they have a perfect relationship with the world around them, and they have a perfect relationship with God, right? They're given only one rule, and they have the freedom to choose. Are they going to trust God's wisdom or their own? Are they going to have allegiance to God and his will and obey his commandment or not, right? And we know that they lean on their own, a bit, uh, their own wisdom. They disobey and they eat the fruit, right? They shift their allegiance and disobey. We see God's grace there in that he did not immediately kill them, right? He said the penalty is death and they did eventually die, um, but he did not kill them on the spot. Right? So we see, we see grace there. We see it with Abraham and Sarah, where God gave them a specific promise that their children would outnumber the stars. Right? In that story, if you remember, they chose to not trust in God's promise, but to try and do it their own way. 
right? And so they brought in Hagar. They, they took advantage of her, had a son that way. Um, God still fulfilled his promise through Sarah. She still had a son, and there were consequences there. But we do see God's grace. We see the choice, and we see a question of allegiance. Uh, we see Ruth. Um, her allegiance was to God. She said, uh, I will go with you, Naomi. Your God will be my God, right? Your people will be my people. And the consequences there were phenomenal, right? She is in the lineage of King David, of Solomon, right? Even though she was from a different country. So we see a positive example. Uh, we see Israel later um, deciding that they want to have a king, even though God is supposed to be their king, right? So they choose someone else over God, right? And we see the fallout of that. Um, last week, John uh, talked about the effects of King Solomon's disobedience and sin with Rehoboam and Jer- Jeroboam, the split of the kingdom, and how each one of those shifted their focus from obeying God and his commandments to doing things their own way and the various consequences that fell out uh, of that. So this week, we're going to continue that thread, and we'll probe it in, in several different ways. Um, all right, so let's set the stage. Uh, this is a very, very old fresco or painting or something. Um, it's obviously not to scale, but it's very interesting. All right, so setting the stage. This week we're going to talk about Elijah on Mount Carmel. So backing up, we see um, in this time period, we are now three generations after Rehoboam and Jeroboam. That puts us about five generations post-King David. Okay, So in our own point of reference, Right now, we're about four generations after Abraham Lincoln, okay? So think time scale, Abraham Lincoln to today, King David to Elijah, all right? Roughly speaking, okay? So Ahab is now the king in the northern kingdom, which is where Jeroboam had been king and had set up the golden calves, if you remember from last week, all right? Ahab has married a Phoenician wife, Jezebel, and she has brought Baals and Asherah to the kingdom. Ahab has built temples and openly worshipped and encouraged people to worship them as well. Um, Baal is sort of a generic term for Lord or God. They have many different ones. Um, But this is painted as one of the lowest points in terms of idolatry and disobedience in the northern kingdom. There are still people in the northern kingdom that follow the Lord, uh, the God of Israel, Uh, that are in the land in spite of everything that's going on, but they're actively being persecuted. Jezebel is actively going out, finding anyone that is a prophet of God and executing them, okay? So this is a very difficult time uh, if you want to really follow God. Um, We know that Elijah is one of those that has remained steadfast to God. God has already told him to go and visit Ahab and tell Ahab, it's not gonna rain until I come back and say so, basically, right? And, and it was a penalty for disobedience, okay? So it's been about three years since that time. It hasn't rained for about three years. Rivers and streams are drying up. The grasslands no longer have grass. The cattle, the livestock are starting to die off. And then God tells Elijah to go see King Ahab, okay? So that's the setup for where we're at starting with this passage, all right? All right, so 1 Kings 18. Um, and by the way, in case you hadn't noticed, we're going to cover a lot of ground. So if you get your iPads out, and uh, we can take down verses and notes, and I'll try and 
point them out when they come up, and you can look them up later and discuss uh, or look at in your own uh, Bible study time. All right. So when Ahab saw Elijah, he said to him, Is it really you, the one who brings disaster on Israel? And Elijah replied, I didn't bring disaster on Israel, but you and your father's dynasty have, by abandoning the Lord's commandments and following the Baals. Now, send out messengers, assemble all Israel before me at Mount Carmel, as well as the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah whom Jezebel supports. So Ahab sent messengers to all the Israelites and had the prophets assemble at Mount Carmel. Elijah approached all the people and he said, how long are you going to be paralyzed by indecision? If the Lord is the true God, then follow him. But if Baal is, follow him. But the people did not say a word. Elijah said to them, I am the only prophet of the Lord who is left, but there are 450 prophets of Baal. Let them bring us two bowls. Let them choose one for themselves, cut it into pieces and place it on the wood. But they must not set it on fire. I will do the same to the other bull and place it on the wood, but I will not set it on fire. Then you invoke the name of your God. I will invoke the name of the Lord. The God who responds with fire will demonstrate that he is the true God. And the people responded, this will be a fair test. So here we have it. The reason for the showdown, the reason that this passage is in the scripture, right? God wants the people's allegiance. That's what this is all about. In some of the other translations, you'll see this where in this translation it says, how long will you be paralyzed by indecision? In other ones, it will say, how long will you waver between two opinions, right? Is God real? If he is, follow him. If not, go do something else. The people in this situation, in this time period, they're trying to follow God and also the Baals and Asherah. And God here is saying no. You can't do that. That's not possible. You have to choose. And so the question that was brought up in our teaching team meeting is, how does that relate to us today, right? Because it's really easy for us to sit back and think, well, we don't have, like, these statues or other things that we're tempted to worship, right? I mean, we're, we're generally speaking, in our country, we just don't do that, right? But we are living in a world that's saturated with distractions. We're constantly bombarded with other things that are asking for our allegiance. They're asking for our attention. And it's usually in really small ways that creep in. And then as we shift our boundaries, as we rationalize, they become really big ways, right? Sometimes it could be fame or popularity, fortune, respect, money, sexual desires, desire for approval from others, or many other things. If you sit back and think about it, which I encourage you to do, our situation is actually not that much different. We just have a different type of gods that are asking for our attention and our allegiance. Anything that we put above God is an idol, right? We still want both. We still want it all. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. He wants our allegiance. He wants to be on the throne. So back to the story. We have a setup for the showdown. 850 to 1. Online, on the line, is the people's allegiance to God. It is kind of interesting to note here that 
great pains are taken in the setup to this to make it fair, right? And that's what the people call out, like, oh, yeah, that seems fair. They're not making a judgment call yet on who's God, but they're willing to say, yeah, that sounds like it's fair, right? This shall be a fair test. All right, so we'll go to the next one. Elijah told the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls for yourself and go first because there are more of you. You're the majority. Invoke the name of your God, but do not light a fire. So they took a bull, as he suggested, and prepared it. They invoked the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Baal, answer us. But there was no sound, no answer. They jumped around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah mocked them, yelled louder. After all, he is God. Maybe he's thinking. Maybe he's deep in thought. Maybe he's relieving himself. Maybe he's taking a trip. Maybe he's sleeping and you need to wake him up. So they yelled louder, and in accordance with their prescribed ritual, they mutilated themselves with swords and spears until their bodies were covered with blood. This would have been quite a scene. Right? 850 people dancing around an altar, yelling, screaming, cutting themselves, trying to get Baal to answer. And not just for like 15 minutes, right? All morning, all afternoon. This is an all-day thing, right? It would have been incredible. And the trash talking, right? Elijah lets him go at it for three or four hours, and then he starts saying, well, well maybe he had to go poop. Maybe you just need to wait a bit, and he'll come out. Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe you just need to wake him up, right? It, it's, it's pretty crazy, the kinds of things that Elijah did, right? Remember, there's 850 of them, and he's by himself. Why doesn't he answer? Yell louder, you idiots! As an aside, is this how we talk to God? Yelling and screaming, demanding things? Is that what God wants from us? In Micah 6, you can write that down to look it up later. In Micah 6, he says, do justice. This is what God wants from you. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. Right? So next slide. Throughout the afternoon, they were in an ecstatic frenzy, but there was no sound, no answer, no response. Elijah told the people, approach me, come to me. So all the people approached him. He repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones corresponding to the number of tribes that descended from Jacob, to whom the Lord had said, Israel will be your new name. With the stones, he constructed an altar for the Lord. Around the altar, he made a large trench, enough to contain two seas of seed. He arranged the wood, cut up the bowl, and placed it on the wood. So here, Elijah brings the people together. He assembles them to worship God. He reminds them how to go about doing that, how to build the altar. And the author is very specific to remind us, the readers, of the significance of having 12 stones, right? Why is this done? This is a remembering. It's not that dissimilar from this, which we will do later. The trench that contains two seas, for those of you that don't work in seas, um, that's about seven gallons, by the way. I don't work in seas either, so I had to convert it. Okay, 
So then Elijah says, fill four jars with water, pour the water on the offering and the wood. Remember, three years of drought. Three years of drought, four jars of water, one. Where would they have found it? Whose private stash did they get into, right? Two, how much was that worth? Not only is he dumping life, right? You need water to live. He's dumping money. That would have been extremely valuable in this time period, okay? And it also serves a purpose of demonstrating the thing wasn't already lit, right? Okay? So uh, they dumped four, four jars on the, on the wood. When they had done so, he said, do it again. So they did it again. He said, do it a third time. They did it a third time. The water flowed down all the sides of the altar, filled the trench. When it was time for the evening offering, Elijah the prophet approached the altar and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, prove today that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant and have done all of these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are the true God and you are winning back their allegiance. Boom. Show these people so that they will know that you, O Lord, are the true God and that you are winning back their allegiance. Then fire from the Lord fell from the sky. It consumed the offering, the wood, the stones, the dirt, licked up the water in the trench. When the people saw this, they threw themselves down with their faces to the ground and said, the Lord is the true God. The Lord is the true God. Elijah told them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let even one escape. They seized them. Elijah led them down to the Kishon Valley and executed them there. Wow. The people instantly recognized God's power. There's no question that he exists. And as a result, they purged the land of the false prophets. The outline here is similar to in Joshua. When Joshua, at the end of his life, he says, choose this day whom you will serve, right? We get that same sense. This is repeated in Scripture. Choose whom you will serve. Choose, recognize who is the real God. Who deserves to be on the throne? So we have this outline of this amazing story, which I think we have a slide for. The purpose is clear here, to bring back the people's allegiance to God. And the purpose for us today is the same. But how do we interpret this in light of Jesus and the gospel? After all, I mean, it seems kind of violent, right? They, they murdered 850 people. And Jesus is love. So how do we square this? How do we, how do we go about understanding this? Well, we can't spend all day here, unfortunately. Um, so we're going to hit some of the New Testament verses. We're going to take a look at two incidents in particular where Jesus interacts with people and can give us some guidance. So first one's not up there because it's really long. But write this down in your notes, John 8. Go back and look at it later. The quick summary of this is that Jesus is teaching in the temple, and the Pharisees bring a woman that has been caught in the act of adultery. Okay? There's no question of guilt. Um, The leaders bring her to Jesus, and they want him to pass judgment. They want to stone her. So Jesus stoops. He writes on the ground. We don't know what he wrote. There's a lot of speculation. A lot of interesting uh, sermons could be preached on this. 
Um, but he writes on the ground. What we do know is that after he has spent some time writing on the ground, he tells them, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. Right? So they all leave, starting with the oldest, and eventually they're all gone, and Jesus is there. He does not condemn her to death, but he does say, go and sin no more. Right? He acknowledges her guilt, her sin, tells her, in light of this, don't do it again. Recognize who God is. Realign yourself. Go and sin no more. Here, he's not desiring her death. Right? He's desiring her allegiance. John 8. Go back and look that one up. The next one, which we do have a slide on, is Mark 9. Uh, Jesus, in this, and you can go back and look at earlier part of this, he's, he's pulled a child into the group. They've had some discussion, and then we have this, this passage here, where he says, whoever causes one of these little ones to, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell. So if you had this in a Bible that was red letter, all of this is in red, right? This is what Jesus said. This seems also very violent, right? And if we take it literally, then we're like living in Sharia law, okay? So let's try and understand what it is that Jesus is talking about. I think the bottom line here is Jesus is talking about a zero tolerance policy towards sin in our lives. No compromise. Get the sin out of your life, right? This is a process that my grandma called sanctification. Right? We don't talk, we don't use that word very often these days. We don't talk a lot about it. But if you look back in the law in the Old Testament, we will see this same pattern where there's a zero tolerance policy towards sin in the people of God. As followers of Jesus, our lives should look different than the rest of the world. We can't serve God and other things. We can't set our own wisdom and reason above God's. The process of seeking God's wisdom and cutting off the things that keep us from him is sanctification. We have to root the sin out of our lives, bit by bit, becoming more like Christ every day. That's the goal of the Christian life. Proverbs 16.25 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Don't lean on our own wisdom. Things that seem right to us but are in direct conflict with God is the way to death. And so now, personal examples. This may be difficult for me, but um, these, the intention here is I want us to look at, like we, we've looked at a story of Elijah that was many thousands of years ago. We've looked at Jesus' teaching when he was on earth and he was trying to explain to us how to live in perfect relationship with God, right? But it's still a different culture, let's be honest. None of us 
here are, are Jews living in Palestine in AD 30, right? So I'm gonna tell you a few stories from my life that hopefully will spark in your imagination um, how do we internalize this? These are not going to be stories where I did something perfect. <laughs> this is gonna be the opposite kind of story. So many years ago when I was a teenager, I was kind of hoping somebody would laugh at that. <laughs> maybe, maybe not so many years ago, I'm not sure. Depends on uh, the day, I suppose, and maybe who I'm talking to go to. Anyway, back when I was a teenager, I was invincible. I knew everything. And I started dating. She was the smartest, the most athletic, and prettiest girl in my high school. We were both Christians. It seemed like the perfect match. Uh, for those of you that didn't know me back in high school, which is none of you, <laughs> um, I was reasonably smart and reasonably athletic as well. Um, I mean, if I guess full disclosure, I was the only guy that played soccer in my high school because I went to a nerd high school, so I was considered a jock. And when I went back to the uh, soccer team, I was considered a nerd because I was at the nerd high school. So it <laughs> seemed like a perfect match. I was convinced that we would get married someday. The relationship started out innocently enough, but over the course of four years that we dated, small compromises were made. A little compromise here, or disobedience, also known as sin, a little there, and before long, we were way out of bounds. Even though the Bible said clearly these things were not okay, I still justified them. I elevated my own reason, my own logic, my own desire above God. I don't think we do this consciously, usually, most of the time, but that's what we're doing when we make these decisions to sweep aside, justify, not following things that God has spelled out clearly. In reality, we're, I was engaged in what the Bible calls immoral behavior, sin, period, full stop. Consequences were rough. I can see God's grace in it now. The relationship ended abruptly, which was excruciating, maybe the most painful period of my life. I now see it as God's hand calling us both back to repentance, to reorient our lives, and allegiance back to him, put him back on the throne, not myself, not her, not anything else. Emotionally and psychologically, it was brutal. Pain and anguish dragged on for a long time. After growing accustomed to living by compromise, it takes a lot of effort to daily reorient and commit yourself to follow Jesus again. But here's the kicker. We can't do it on our own. We cannot do that in our own strength. We have to rely on Jesus. We have to daily ask him, take out my heart of stone. Give me a heart of flesh that yearns for you. Renew my mind. Cleanse my mind. Orient it towards you. Otherwise, we get caught in that try harder, give up cycle over and over again, right? I've been there. It's terrible. Proverbs 3 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord 
turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Here is grace. God gives us direction in his word and the freedom to choose him or not. He graciously calls us back to him when we stray. This is love. Even though all discipline seems painful at the time, it is for our good. And we have this promise that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, right? But this requires a long obedience. Trust in God and to trust him above our own ideas or what culture might tell us or those around us even. Example number two. So Lindsay and I have now been married for almost 20 years. (laughs) Which is definitely evidence of grace. (laughs) Um, But within that first year of marriage, uh, we found out, it just sort of happened. We started snipping, arguing with each other for no apparent reason. We couldn't figure it out. It was really frustrating. Like, why are we arguing? We discovered that it always happened within a day or two of watching a particular TV show. I know that's going to seem crazy, but that's what happened. On this particular show, people were arguing with each other, subverting one, one another, snipping at each other, forming alliances to destroy other people. Yeah, we, we, we realized these actions were the opposite of the fruits of the Spirit, and they were causing that same kind of strife and contention between us, which is clearly not what God wants, right? So we cut it out. We stopped watching that show, and to this day, avoid shows like that. We found that it's dramatically helped our marriage, even if this meant that we couldn't discuss these popular shows with our friends. We decided that the wisdom of God is better than the plot twists of men. So here's my one example where I feel like we did it right. (laughs) All right? So I don't know what that's going to mean for you when you apply it to your life, but there's an example. May it spur your thinking. Example number three. So like I mentioned, I've loved playing soccer uh, since I was about nine. So if you're counting, that's more than 30 years. Um, I've played on three different continents. I've played with people from dozens and dozens of countries. I tried to write it down one time and lost count. It's well over 50. Um, It has been a part of my identity for a long time. Um, In recent years, I was honored to be the only white guy on a league team here locally, um, which was a tremendous honor for me. I really enjoyed playing with those guys. We played together for probably about seven years. We won some titles. We always had a pretty good team. But a few years ago, maybe maybe two years ago, uh, I realized that the way things were going and continuing to go in this league, interactions with certain officials, some of the players on the other teams, I had a problem. My goal was to go play, have fun, blow off stress, enjoy hanging out with these guys. But other people took it too seriously, to the point of fighting, yelling, um, et cetera. So I know that God's word says the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. What am I going to do? I wanted to play. I waffled back and forth. I was of two minds for more than a year, trying to figure out a way that I could continue to do this thing that I have loved 
for more than three decades in this situation. I rationalized it. But at the end of the season, about a year ago, after playing in another championship game, I knew I had to quit. So I told them I couldn't play anymore. I just didn't sign up for the next season. Cut it off. I'm still friends with some of those guys, and I still see them occasionally. I saw one last week. It was really good to see him again. But I don't, I don't play in that league. I know that might sound trivial to some of you, um, but I challenge you to quit doing something you've done for more than 30 years and that you love. But the question is, is God worthy of our everything or not? Period. Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commands. It's not our intellectual assent that God is after. It's our obedience, our actions. What we do demonstrates what we believe and who we believe in. How do we demonstrate our allegiance to God? By living and acting in accordance with the principles and rules that he has given us. In other words, choosing to do things his way, even when everyone else disagrees. So this can be scary, right? And we can get caught in this trap of, I think John phrased it as uh, going between a rebel and slave, right? Uh, or we get caught in the try harder, give up mentality. But perfect love casts out fear. How do we get to that point, right? How do we get to that point where we have this perfect love, where we understand it? And Alex and I were talking earlier and um, thinking over it, look, as, as a child, you're given rules, right? Or we give them to our own children and we say, look, if you uh, do this thing, then there's this consequence, right? So there's an understanding of punishment. I think Ryan Jackson actually talked about how his mom had a gridded chart, like so you knew exactly what it would be, right? So for training purposes and as a child, that makes sense, right? We can train ourselves, we can understand there are consequences for actions. Now, consequences don't change, but our focus as we get older needs to. It should change. We no longer should be focused on fear of consequence, but our focus has to turn to a love for God, an understanding of the one that created us, that knows everything, that has our best and everyone's best interest in mind, an understanding of what he has done in forgiving our deepest, darkest sins, of cleaning us, of calling us righteous under the blood of Jesus, when we sit with that and understand that deeply in our souls, then we have love. Then we do not need to fear. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's how that works. Paul continues in Romans 8. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So let's turn our allegiance back to Jesus in every aspect of our lives. Acknowledge the places where we have usurped his position and authority. Confess our sins to Jesus. Know that he loves us and he's faithful not only to forgive, but to make us clean and beautiful again. This is a lifelong process, folks. This is not a one time, I believe in Jesus, I get baptized, I'm good to go. That is the first step, right? 
we have to continue to do this every day. All right, let's do a prayer together. I'm going to try this. And then after that, the band can come up. So let this sit with you, and I'm just going to lead us in a prayer. After this prayer, then we'll have a time of reflection and communion. And let's think about it. Let's think about where is the Holy Spirit pushing in my heart, in my mind? What things do I need to adjust, to reorient? We've all got something. Me too. Nobody's perfect, right? All right, close your eyes. Pray with me. Jesus, we confess that we have not followed your commandments. We do not seek your, first, your kingdom first. We seek our own. We do not always seek your righteousness, but instead, in the impurity of our hearts, we desire the things of this world. We make excuses to ourselves and to each other to try to justify our behavior, but we know in our hearts we're wrong. You are the one true God. You are the creator of heaven and earth. Take out our hearts of stone and give us a heart that yearns for you in your kingdom. Scrub evil from our minds. Help us daily take every thought captive to your word. Give us the mind of Christ to serve you and you alone and not seek our own desires. Renew us daily. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for your faithfulness, even when we are not faithful. Amen. The worship team can come up. So in a minute, we're going to take communion. We're going to pass offering plates around. The communion is another one of those times when we get together and we say, Jesus, you are the king. You are on the throne. You are in charge and I am not. We remember that he died to pay the penalty for our sins. He was perfect. We are not perfect. He was the sacrifice. And by his sacrifice, we are cleansed, we are healed, we are made new. So as you come up and take this, just say that to yourself, to him. Jesus, you are my king. You are my Lord. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for loving me. Help me to follow you. As we do that, gather in close. We'll, t- we'll uh, come around close, and then we'll, we'll take the elements together, and Alex will lead us in that.
take my world apart And I am on my knees Take my world apart Broken on my knees Take my world apart I am on my knees Take my world apart I'm broken on my knees. I hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, the holy name. On Jesus' name When darkness veils His lovely face I rest on His unchanging grace In every high and stormy gale My anchor holds within the veil On Christ's solid rock I stand All other ground is sinking sand All other ground is sinking His covenant, His blood, support me in the well flood. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Other ground is sinking sand. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. 
Dressed in his righteousness alone Faultless to stand for the throne On Christ's solid rock I stand All other ground is sinking sand All other ground is sinking sand On Christ's solid rock I stand All other ground is sinking sand All other ground is sinking sand Sinking sand Yeah, allow me the privilege of leading us as a church in this um, time together. Look, um, this table means a lot. Um, I don't know if you know the story behind this table, but uh, you may notice, for those of you that have been around, you know the story. For those of you that are new, you notice the left side of the table is very rough. So it's actually in its most raw form, but as you move across the table from left to right, um, yeah, it's, it becomes more perfect, more, more formed. Um, there's also three different kinds of wood that were used um, to make the table to represent the Trinity. And if you notice the base of the table, it's, it's like a vines. It's like roots going into the ground. So this is a table for us of new, um, of new expectations. This is a table for us, as uh, Tim mentioned, of remembrance. Um, not just remembering or recalling, but for us to be remembered. For us to be brought back together in unity with one another. That's why there's so much text around communion that talks about repairing relationships with your brothers and sisters, right? Because we're supposed to be drawn back together in unity around this table. Um, it's a table that reminds us of provision, of who's providing what and when and how. Um, so as we take this, be reminded of uh, and be remembering of what we are to be doing, right? I always like to remind myself that what Jesus did when he said, remember me, is not just, oh, hey, I want to be famous. <laughs> you know, he was, by the way. It's not just I want to be famous, but I want you to be remembering what I did. What I did when I was walking on the earth. Remember that, too. So, he says, this is his body, right? He said, this is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. So, Grace Church, let's do this.
I'd like to lead us. Um, actually, I'm not going to lead us, right? I'm just going to make space for this to happen. But I really feel like in light of um, the conversations that we've had this morning and a lot of the conversations we're having as a church, that we need to spend some time just in prayer together. Um, for some of you, that may just be private. may just be you sitting with thoughts. Um, for others, you know, we may need to gather together and, and spend some, some time praying. Um, you know, in this conversation about you know, being right before God, being sanctified, and how we're be living that out, uh, I think you need to come up with a definition of what sin really looks like. And I know at Grace, a lot of what we talk about is anything that we're doing that's separating us from God or that's causing us to be separated from one another. Those are the things that we qualify as sin. That gives you a principle. If you're looking for a list of rules, <laughs> there's not enough in there to cover everything, every possibility that we'll encounter in life. So be thinking about that. Um, allow that uh, Spirit of God to s descend on your heart and allow those things to be birthed, to be brought forward so that you can examine them and understand what it is that's keeping your allegiance.
water you turn into wine Open the eyes of the blind There's no one like you None like you Into the darkness you shine Out of the ashes we rise There's no one like you None like you Our God is greater our God is stronger God you are higher than any other Our God is healer Awesome in power Our God Our God Out of the ashes we rise There's no one like you Stronger, God, you are higher 
our petitions God accept our repentance accept our admittance God that we are we are the Baal worshippers we are them we are in this room and we are seeking your face God we are seeking your mercy and your grace God continue to work in us continue to Bring us closer to you and to one another in your name. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, Savior's love for me. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wondered how he could love me. A sinner condemned unclean How marvelous, how wonderful And my song shall ever be How marvelous, how wonderful Is my Savior's love for me My sins and my sorrows, he bore them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. When with the 
ransomed in glory, his face I last shall see. It will be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. Singing how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. Oh, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Singing how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. Oh, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. don't have a loud enough voice without it. Sorry, y'all. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for being here. Just one quick announcement. The leaders meeting will be next Sunday immediately after the service. So if you are coming to that, just mark the date. Um, and thank you to the Gray Students Group and everyone who helped at the fall festival yesterday. It was super fun. We had a lot of kids, so hopefully all the kids had fun. And now for the benediction. Grace Church, may the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Amen.